Do you know what time it is? It's Supernatural Story Time. And if you're easily scared, and even if you're not, there's only one thing left to do. Just turn off the lights, because these are stories that you listen to only in the dark. It's Waiting for Me, Volume 2, Story Number 1. There's a road in the Allegheny Mountains in Mineral County that has two names. At one end of the road, the sign says Limestone Road, while at the other end, the sign reads Hooker Hollow. Just where one ends and the other one begins, no one this day and age seems to know. The local people say as long as they can remember, it has always been that way. Near the Hooker Hollow end of the road, some 40 years ago lived a Mrs. Russell, who proclaimed to the world she was a witch possessing great powers. Most of the population thereabouts doubted her boasts. There were others that were not so sure. A man refused her a ride home from town one day, and for a week his cow gave bloody milk. She warned another family not to allow any of their children to run their lawnmower for at least a week. The family ignored her warning, and the very next day, their son Seth lost two fingers on his right hand when he caught them in the mower. A family by the name of Robinson owned a small apple orchard there on the mountain. They had placed no trespass signs everywhere, with no exceptions allowed. One day they found Mrs. Russell eating an apple, as if she owned the place. She tried to tell them she was hungry and only wanted one apple. Mrs. Robinson informed her that she could care less about her being hungry and that those signs meant everyone, including her. Mrs. Russell climbed over the fence and turned and smiled out of the corner of her mouth at Mrs. Robinson. I see you're pregnant, she said. Soon you will see someone a lot more hungry than I am now. I don't think you'll like the price she'll pay for your apples. She waved and grinned as she walked slowly down the road. About a month later, the Robinson's first child was born. It cried almost constantly. The doctor tried one bottle formula after the other. None seemed to work. One day the doctor told Mrs. Robinson the baby was starving to death and he had done absolutely all he could. As he left that afternoon, he picked up an apple from a nearby table and began eating it as he walked out the door. That caused Mrs. Robinson to remember the words Mrs. Russell had spoken in the orchard only a few weeks before. The next morning she bundled up the baby and went to see Mrs. Russell. My baby is ill, very ill, she said. If you did cast a spell over him, won't you please take it away? I'm sorry the way I spoke to you that day in the apple orchard. You can have all the apples you want as long as you live. Won't you please help me if you can? He's our first child. I'm afraid you have waited too long with your apology, said Mrs. Russell. Maybe, just maybe, I can help him. I'll try. Lay him out there on the porch so I can measure him. Measuring a baby can do a lot of good, you know. That's about the only thing I can do for him now. She went into the house and came out with a cloth tape measure and measured the baby. She then made an X on the baby's chest with her right forefinger, told Mrs. Robinson to take the baby home, for she had done all she could. The next day the baby died. Whether Mrs. Russell was the cause of the baby's death or not, the Robinsons would think so as long as they lived. In her later years, Mrs. Russell's grandson, Jason Lambert, came to live with her. Jason was a quiet, likable fellow in his early teens and slim as a rail. A new family moved into the hollow that summer who had a son, David, about Jason's age. 
The boys soon became good friends and spent many happy hours that fall, roaming the hollow during evenings after school. David, of course, had heard that Jason's grandmother was a witch and one day asked him if it was so. Nah, said Jason, I don't think so. Well, I admit she does do and say some funny things at times. You don't believe in witches, do you, Dave? No, I guess not, said David. About the time school started that fall, Jason developed a dry hacking cough. David suggested he see a doctor, but Jason said his grandmother was taking care of him and he'd be all right. As a cooler weather winter approached, Jason's cough became worse. One day, David and his father insisted so strongly that he see a doctor that he finally agreed if David would go with him. The doctor diagnosed tuberculosis and suggested Jason go to a sanatorium immediately. When Mrs. Russell was informed of the situation, she simply shook her head, placed an arm around Jason's shoulder, and in no uncertain words, informed anyone who cared to listen that she would take care of her own. The day before school was to close for Christmas vacation, Jason was absent. That evening, David went to see why. He found his friend in bed, face red and flushed with a high fever. He asked Mrs. Russell to please get Jason to a doctor, but she reminded him she had great powers and Jason would be up and ready to go rabbit hunting with him in a couple of days. Snow began falling the day school closed, and it kept falling for the next two days and nights. As the storm raged, David could not help but worry about Jason and hoped he was better than the last time he had seen him. When the storm finally ended, the snow measured three feet on the level and six feet and more in some of the drifts. The road in the hollow was almost impassable. The next day it rained and turned bitterly cold. One could walk anywhere on the frozen crust and not break through. Christmas Day dawned clear and cold. As soon as David finished breakfast, he told his parents he was going to see Jason and take him a box of shotgun shells for a Christmas present. As he approached the house, he sensed something wrong. To this very day, he cannot explain why he felt that way as he knocked on the door. Mrs. Russell opened the door and calmly invited him in. My Davy, it sure is nice of you to come out in this cold to see Jason, she said. I've got something I want you to help me with. How is he? asked David as he removed his coat and threw it across the back of a chair. Oh, he died last night, she said. But don't you worry none, Davy. You see, I'm going to take care of my grandson. You can bet on that. Come on, let's go see him. I'm going to need a little help, and you're just the one to help me. There he is stretched out on the bed, just like he was asleep, she said, as they entered the room. Davy, I'm an old woman, which of you will, and Jason is so young. He's just too young to die. So what I aim to do is this. I'm going to breathe my life into him, but you got to help. I can do it too, just you wait and see. I guess I'm going to die, and if I do, don't worry none about me. It's Jason we got to worry about now. Will you help me? By this time, David was petrified. He had always thought she was at least half-witch, and now he was certain she was all-witch. He was so scared, he could not utter a word. He was afraid to refuse because of what she might do to him, so he slowly nodded his head in the affirmative. Good, said Mrs. Russell. Now, I'll tell you what to do. You hold Jason's nose closed so when I breathe my breath into him by his mouth, it can't get out his nose. You have to hold it till he starts to breathe on his own. Oh my God, please, Mrs. Russell, wailed David. I never touched a dead person before. 
Please, I'm scared. Do I have to? Oh, for goodness sake, said Mrs. Russell, taking David's hand and placing it on Jason's forehead. See, it's just like any cold piece of meat. Nothing to it. Now, do like I told you, so we can get Jason breathing again. By this time, of course, rigor mortis had set in, but David shut his eyes and slowly began to squeeze on Jason's cold, stiff nose. He was shaking like a tree caught in a storm. David opened his eyes for a second, and the room began to spin. But he was afraid if he fainted, she might take his life and give it to Jason. This brought him back to the world of reality in a hurry. He liked Jason, but not that much. Just can't understand it, said Mrs. Russell after a while. You can't let go now. I know. I can do it. They are not going to embalm him, Davy. They're not. I just know I can give him my breath of life. I know I can. I guess I'll have to get word to a doctor and buy a casket. Will you do that for me and Jason? If I do get life into him, you can bury me in the coffin instead of him. And Davy, just in case Jason's still dead this evening, will you come back and set up with him tonight? Dad and I will take care of things, said David. Someone will be here tonight to set up with Jason, I promise. On the way home, David's knees almost buckled under him a couple of times. He could still feel that cold, dead flesh under his hands and hear the voice of the witch. Yes, he was sure now. She was one. No doubt about it. For the next two nights, David and a couple of his friends sat up with a body. Each evening, as he approached the house, he half expected to see Jason away from the door or window, but Jason lay still and white in his coffin. The day of the funeral arrived. David and his friends were pallbearers. They carried the casket out on top of the snow to the main road where a horse and sled waited. Some hour and a half later, the casket rested in front of the Zion Church. There the casket was to remain open for viewing for the next 30 minutes. Then the funeral services would begin. As David looked around the church, cold chills played cat and mouse up and down his spine. There on a seat in the back row wearing a long black cape was Mrs. Russell. She was shaking her fist in the air but making no sound. The minister rose from his chair and took a step forward. As he did so, Mrs. Russell let out a blood-curdling scream and ran forward. She threw her black cape over the casket and tried once more to breathe her life into Jason's corpse. It took two strong men to restrain the frail woman. Finally, Jason was laid to rest in the church cemetery to be followed by his grandmother, Mrs. Russell, within a week. As David walked away from Mrs. Russell's funeral, he was heard to remark, maybe she did breathe at least part of her life into Jason after all. Next story. I've had two encounters with a white beast. Both occurred around or near my best friend's house in New Cumberland, West Virginia. I used to spend more time there than at my own home. His dad owned about three acres of land, but only about three quarters of an acre was cleared for their house and yard. The rest was thick woods. The first incident occurred around 1994, right in his front yard. We were playing, running in and out of his dad's small, pull-behind camper. Around dusk, we decided to leave the camper and go inside to play some games. I stepped out of the trailer first, followed closely by my friend. When I looked to my right, I saw something that looked like a large white bear. When my friend looked to see what I was staring at, the thing looked back at us. It was approximately 50 yards away from us. Then it stood up on its hind legs and was about six and a half feet tall. It turned and ran through the woods away from us, breaking sticks and medium-sized limbs 
off of trees as it went. The next incident occurred around 1999 in the same woods. This time we were camping out in the woods. The only trail leading to the campsite was a little less than a mile long. Around 2 a.m. we began hearing something moving around just outside of the light provided by our campfire. All of a sudden, the white beast appeared out of the darkness and charged at us. We jumped up and ran back to his house, all the while this thing was chasing us. The thing stopped at the wood line and let out a terrible scream. Then it just turned around and headed back into the woods. The next morning we examined the trail and the ground was so torn up that it appeared as though someone had taken a tiller all the way out the trail. Next story. It was Halloween of 1980. My sister and I had already finished trick-or-treating and our parents decided to let us go five houses up the hollow to visit my aunt. After a few hours, my sister and I wanted to go home to get something for our aunt. When we mentioned that her father-in-law started teasing us about the late-night stranger getting us, we had heard this story and many other about ghosts all our lives, so we didn't think much about it and headed out the door. There had been a light drizzle all evening long, which added an eerie touch to our surroundings. The holler was completely abandoned and was unnaturally quiet. My sister suddenly put her hand on my shoulder and whispered, Hey, where's everybody at? I said, I don't know. Maybe they all went inside. Let's go. She hesitated a bit and whispered, It's kind of creepy. Should we go back? I grabbed a hold of her shirt sleeve and pulled her along. Come on, sis. What, are you scared or something? We got about halfway home when she stopped and said she was scared. I turned to her and told her that we were almost home and she could make it. When I turned back, there was a man walking towards us. He was a short distance away, and I noticed that he was dressed in a black trench coat with a black hat on. My sister's hand tightened on my shoulder, and she whispered, Who's that? I don't know. Let's just keep moving. We kept walking. As a stranger passed, I glanced up towards his face, but couldn't see anything. His features appeared as a black blur. He must have noticed me looking, for he said, Good evening, ladies. His voice was soft and strange. My sister and I didn't respond, but kept walking. After a few paces, I turned around and then back, half expecting him to be following us, a child's instinct, I suppose. What I saw was even more frightening. The street was completely deserted. There was no sign of anyone having been up or down the road. No man, no footprints on the wet cement. Nothing at all. There wasn't a single place the man could have gone or hidden in such a short amount of time, and he was gone. A chill ran down my spine. I looked at my sister in utter disbelief. She gazed at me with the same expression. Then we both turned in unison and ran the rest of the way home. I explained to my grandpa the details of the encounter. From the spot where my grandpa was sitting on the porch, he could see my aunt's house. He claimed that he had only seen my sister and I come up the road, no one else. We were all convinced that it was the late night stranger that we had heard about in previous stories, although I had heard of him my entire life. I never expected to actually see him, and I'll always remember that night. Next story. One of the strangest poltergeist cases of all time haunted the home of a farmer named Adam Livingston, who lived in this small community at the end of the 1700s. Some say these strange events are still going on at the property today. The Adam Livingston Farm in Middleway became a place of both fear and curiosity in 1797 when people came to see the Livingston Wizard perform its strange magic. Dishes fell out of cabinets and broke on the floor. Fires and lanterns 
went out when no one was near them. Things flew about the house by their own power. Money vanished. Livestock disappeared and died, and strange screams and bells were heard around the farm. One afternoon, Livingston saw a man stop in the road with a wagon. The teamster demanded that Livingston remove the rope that was stretched across the roadway. When he said there was no rope, the driver angrily slashed at it with his knife, but the blade passed through nothing. Another wagon came along at the same time, and this driver also saw the rope, but he couldn't cut it either. Finally, Livingston convinced them to move on. A short time later, the strange events took another turn. Day and night, the family heard the sound of cutting shears in the house, snipping constantly with an irritating metallic sound. Items around the house began to be mysteriously cut apart. Clothing, blankets, saddles, shoes, boots, anything that could be cut was scissored into odd spiral shapes. A visitor to the house wrapped her good silk cap in a handkerchief before entering the house. When she left, she opened the handkerchief and discovered that the cap had been cut into ribbons, but the handkerchief had never been touched. Another visitor, a tailor from Middleway, planned to expose the stories as a fraud. He walked to the house carrying a suit that was wrapped in a paper bundle under his arm. He heard the sound of the shears, but saw nothing. When he unwrapped the untouched paper, he found that the suit inside had been sliced into pieces. What started these strange events in the house? It is believed that they were tied to a stormy night in 1794, when a stranger appeared at the door of the Livingston house and asked for shelter. The family took him in and fed him, but in the middle of the night, Adam Livingston heard strange wheezing and gasping sounds. The stranger was coughing violently and was barely able to speak, but he did manage to ask his host to summon a priest. The man realized that he was dying. Livingston, being a devout Lutheran, knew of no priest in the area, and besides, he had always sworn that no Catholic priest would ever set foot on his property. In the night, the stranger died, and the next morning, some neighbors helped Livingston to bury the man in a corner of his property. A small cross was erected at the grave. The bizarre phenomena began just hours after the burial and would continue for years. The story of the haunting gained fame in the area and the ghost became known as the Livingston Wizard. The family was plagued by the events for years and Livingston implored his minister to conduct an exorcism on the property. The Lutheran pastor failed as did an Episcopalian minister and three Methodists. One night Livingston dreamed of a man whom a voice said could help him. He was a Catholic priest named Father Dennis Cahill. Some friends in Shepherdstown helped to track the man down and he came to the Livingston farm. Father Cahill blessed the house with holy water and as he turned to leave, a satchel of money that had been missing for over a year suddenly appeared and fell onto the doorstep. It all appeared to be over at last, but it wasn't. The manifestation soon began again. By this time, the story had spread as far as Baltimore and the Catholic diocese there sent Father Dimitri Gallatin to investigate. After living with the Livingstons for three months, he recommended an exorcism. Father Cahill returned to the house, and the two priests and the entire family prayed for the spirit to leave the house. The horror was finally over. Livingston was so grateful that he converted to Catholicism, and in 1802 deeded 40 acres of his estate to the church. In 1978, a religious retreat called Priestfield Pastoral Center was built on the land. But have the strange events of the past really ended? Some say they have not. A priest who was leading a tour group of the retreat had his metal rim glasses snipped into by an unseen force and tourists who have visited the site have reported camera straps, purses, clothing, and other items have been mysteriously cut to pieces. Next story. 
My brother and my father have seen a creature in the counties to the south of Charleston, which is best described as a demon creature. I have never seen it, and I was having trouble believing the stories until I saw a story on the TV about a demon creature that had been spotted many times in Connecticut. The encounters they depicted on this show matched exactly to what my dad and brother had told me about years ago. My brother and his fiancée were walking up the mountain behind my grandmother's house in Yawkey, West Virginia, spring of 1980. Since the peak of the mountain offered a spectacular view, he was wanting to propose to her there. As they were walking up a narrow trail at about 3 or 4 in the afternoon, they heard what sounded like a bear coming up towards them from the left side of the trail. The mountain had thick underbrush on both sides of the trail, so they were unable to see exactly what it was until it stepped onto the trail about 20 to 30 feet in front of them. My brother has hunted all his life and is familiar with all the indigenous species in these woods, but he says that he has never seen anything like what stood before them that day. It was a large blackford animal that was larger than a bear and had a long bushy tail and pointed snout similar to a wolf. When it first stepped on the trail, it was walking on all fours. My brother says that it had a foul odor, and the very sight of it made his hair stand on end. At first it seemed as if the creature was unaware that they were even there, so they stayed completely quiet as my brother eased his fiancée behind him in a feeble attempt to protect her if this thing attacked. When it stepped on the trail, it suddenly came to a stop, stood up on its hind legs like a man, and then turned and stared at them. My brother says its eyes were small and shone bright neon red. When it stood on its hind legs, he said that it easily stood at seven feet tall. His heart sank when it turned and looked at them. He knew for sure that they were dead, but then it walked off the very steep side of the mountain to the right of the trail, still standing on its hind legs. He says that it didn't stand like a bear, but almost as if it was meant to be walking on its hind legs, which were somewhat larger and longer than its front arms or legs. After recounting this to my father, who had grown up in West Virginia throughout the 1930s and 40s, he said that he knew of this creature from when he was a child. He said that it would come around their home occasionally and kill some of the livestock. The thing that scared him the most about the creature, though, was the fact that their dogs were scared of it and would crawl as far under the house as they could get when it would come near. Apparently, these dogs weren't afraid of anything except this creature. He said that when it would walk around the house at night, you could see the top of its back extending well above the window sills, which were already several feet above the ground, and could feel the ground shudder with each step that it took. As it would approach, a foul odor would fill the house. Then the next morning they would find where it had killed a horse or a cow or other such livestock. To this day, nobody was ever able to tell exactly what this thing was, but many have reported having encounters with it. Next story. On or about... November 23rd, I can't remember the year, my cousin and I were at a deer camp in Webster County on Cranberry Ridge. We were well off the main road, probably five miles into the mountains, where 4 by 4s needed to go to the camp. While it was unusually warm that day, and it happened to rain extremely hard that evening, and we were getting ready to cook, and my father and uncles had forgotten the lard, my cousin and I decided we would ride his four-wheeler across Tunnel Bridge into Nicholas County to get the lard and a few other things we had forgotten. It was still raining hard and it was close to dusk. Therefore, we put on our rain suits and headed out. As we approached Golly River, the rain started to let up and the clouds started to break. After pushing the two four-wheelers out of a few huge mud holes that had cleared up rather nice out, 
you could see the moon and it lit up the ground slightly. Well, we stopped to remove our raincoats and he was checking to see how much gas we had left. When I took a drink of my Mountain Dew, I turned to ask him if he wanted a drink. I saw what appeared to be a huge wolf standing on its hind legs behind us on the path. All I could see was a silhouette, but the first thing I thought was werewolf. I was only about 16 years old. Out of a long snout and long pointy ears and stood at least six and a half feet tall. It was all hairy and very intimidating. I could barely speak. I was so terrified, but I stammered the words, look. He turned and saw it too. We jumped on the four-wheeler and took off. I was so scared I was afraid to look behind us. I was afraid it would be there chasing us. Let's just say we were so scared that my cousin forgot to shift from second gear and almost blew up his ATV. We got to our uncle's house, loaded up in our aunt's truck, and made her drive us back to camp that night. Everyone at camp wondered why we did not ride back on the ATV. When we told them, they thought we were making it up. To this day, none of them believe us. Next story. Every Christmas, my mom let me through a Christmas party. Most of the time, it was just me and four of my best friends having a sleepover and doing whatever comes to mind. This particular year, we were making hot cocoa, then going outside to play in the snow. After we were finished, we headed back inside. Later that night, after my mom had gone to bed, we watched movies. All of a sudden, it came to me that we had forgotten about the hot cocoa cups outside on my back deck. At this time, two of my friends were sitting on my couch all the way across the room from where my back door was. I thought that I would probably need some help bringing the cups in, so one of my other friends offered to help me. As she opened the door, she screamed, jumped back, and slammed the door shut. I asked what was wrong, and she replied with, There's something on your deck. Being as dumb as I was at the moment, I just decided to brush it off as nothing had happened, thinking that it was probably just a deer. I opened the door and walked halfway on the deck. There was a very strange-looking object about five feet in front of me. It was around seven feet tall and had large red eyes. It was dark, around maybe 2 a.m. when I was standing there, and all I could see was the outline of its body. It was a human body, but not like any human I had ever seen before, though. Its eyes were definitely not like any human eyes I had ever seen anyone because they were big and red. I screamed and ran inside. I shut my glass door behind me and you could hear it click when the door locked. About two seconds after the door locked, we heard something slam against the door. I seriously thought that the glass would break right on top of my head. My friends were all the way across the room and when they heard it, they jumped up and screamed too. We all ran into my bathroom and locked the door. Having skylights in every room in my house, we were afraid something would have come through the roof, so we ran inside the bathroom closet and stayed there for the rest of the night. To this day, no one ever has believed me nor any of my friends, and we're still wondering what we saw that night or what saw us. Next story. This story is a vivid recollection from my childhood growing up in rural Pocahontas County. The encounter took place about 12 miles north of Neola in the southern end of the county. It was late spring or early summer of 1979. My mother, two brothers, and I were returning home late one evening when a truck died. It had lost a fan belt and overheated. We decided to abandon the vehicle for the evening and walk the rest of the way home. We had walked about half a mile when something let out a blood curdling scream less than a hundred feet away. 
My older brother Sean had a D-cell flashlight and pointed it in the direction of the hair-raising sound. The flashlight shone only on dense brush and woods. The flashlight beam was only good for about 30 feet. The animal would always remain just out of range of the light beam. We never saw it, but it was well aware of us and our position at all times. We continued walking towards home with this creature letting out a blood-curdling scream at least every 90 seconds or so. It was systematically circling our position so as to confuse us into thinking we were totally surrounded by numerous animals. I still believe it was only one. At that time, there was a huge fallen white pine across Anthony's Creek right beside the road. The animal demonstrated familiarity with the area by running across this tree to get to the other side. I heard the tree branches slap the creek water with force when it ran across. We crossed the lower water concrete bridge with a tin cabin to our right and the old iron ore pile to our left. The creature had positioned itself just out of sight on top of the ore pile and let out one last roar as we walked past. My brother Sean pointed the light in the direction of the noise. I noticed at that same time he was shaking like Don nuts. We saw nothing. The dogs at home began to bark. I thought if I can hear them then I know they can hear me. So I called for them as loud as I could and they came running to us. My mother claimed she'd heard the creature run up the hollow with a cinder block cabin. It's easy to assume that this was a mountain lion, puma, or cougar. We never saw it and only heard it scream multiple times. But then who knows what it really was. Next story. A few years ago, two friends and I were returning home from a trip to Huntington, West Virginia, and decided to drive back to our home in Charleston by going through Mount Point Pleasant. About an hour into our trip, it started snowing pretty heavy, so I slowed down to be careful on the slick roads. We just rounded a bend in the road. We were in the Arbuckle area. It is very wooded and not really populated. I was only going about 5 or 10 miles an hour. I had good visibility, but the road was completely covered with ice and snow. I looked to my left, and about a foot from my window, I saw what appeared to be a strange creature. Half man, half animal. It had a face very similar to a sheep, horns like a ram, and it was standing upright like a human. I was so stunned and immediately thought I had lost my mind. My friend started screaming, What in the hell was that? So I backed up the car, and it looked at me, turned and ran into the woods. I got a pretty good look at it, basically had its nose right in my face. It was white, furry, and had paws, no hooves, paws like a dog. A sheep-like face and stood upright like a human. It ran away on human legs. This was so weird my friend laid down in the back seat all the way home. Needless to say we discussed this as we drove and could not come up with any animal we knew that resembled it. No, I hadn't been drinking and up until this point had control of all my faculties. I had never seen a ghost, Bigfoot, UFOs or the like and was somewhat skeptical of all paranormal activity. I absolutely saw this thing, and I have no explanation of what it was. I've heard all my life about strange creatures like Mothman and Cornstalk's Curse, associated with Point Pleasant. I'm now convinced that it is a very strange place indeed. I wonder if anyone else has ever seen what we named Sheep Squatch, or are we the only ones?